Healing the Trauma of Loss It took me two years to recover from the death of my father of blessed memory. To this day, almost twenty years later, I'm not sure why. He didn't die suddenly or young. He was well into his eighties. In his last years, he had to undergo five operations, each of which sapped his strength a little more. Besides which, I, as a rabbi, had to officiate at funerals and comfort the bereaved. I knew what grief looked like. The rabbis were critical of one who mourns too much too long. They said that God himself says of such a person, are you more compassionate than I am? Maimonides rules a person shouldn't become excessively broken-hearted because of his person's death, as it says, do not weep for the dead nor bemoan him. This means don't weep excessively, for death is the way of the world, and one who grieves excessively at the way of the world is a fool. With rare exceptions, the outer limit of grief in Jewish law is a year, not more. Yet knowing all these things didn't help. We're not always masters of our emotions, nor does comforting others prepare you for your own experience of loss. Jewish law regulates outward conduct, not inward feeling, and when it speaks of feelings, like the commands to love and not to hate, halacha generally translates this into behavioral terms, assuming in the language of the Sefer HaChinuch that the heart follows the deed. I felt an existential black hole, an emptiness at the core of being. It deadened my sensations, leaving me unable to sleep or focus, as if life was happening at a great distance, as if I were a spectator watching a film out of focus with the sound turned off. The mood eventually passed, but while it lasted, I made some of the worst mistakes of my life. I mention these things because they are the connecting thread of Parshat Chukat. The most striking episode in this is the moment when the people complain about the lack of water. Moses does something wrong, and though God sends water from a rock, he also sentences Moses to an almost unbearable punishment. Because you didn't have sufficient faith in me to sanctify me before the Israelites, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given you. The commentators debate exactly what he did wrong. Was it that he lost his temper with the people, Shimunah Hamorim, listen now, you rebels? Was it that he hit the rock instead of speaking to it? That he made it seem as if it wasn't God, but he and Aaron who were responsible for the water? Shall we bring water out of this rock for you? What's more puzzling still is why he lost control at that moment. He'd faced this same problem before, but he'd never lost his temper before. In Exodus 15, the Israelites at Marah complained that the water was undrinkable because it was bitter. In Exodus 17, at Masa and Merivah, they complained that there was no water. God then told Moses to take his staff and hit the rock, and water flowed from it. So when in our Parsha God tells Moses, take the staff and speak to the rock, it was surely a forgivable mistake to assume that God meant him also to hit it. That's what he'd said last time Moses was following precedent. And besides, if God didn't mean him to hit the rock, why did he command him to take his staff? What's even harder to understand is the order of events. God had already told Moses exactly what to do. Gather the people, speak to the rock, and the water will flow. This was before Moses made his ill-tempered speech beginning, Listen now, you rebels. It's understandable if you lose your composure when you're faced with a problem that seems insoluble. 
This had happened to Moses earlier when the people complained about the lack of meat. But it makes no sense at all to do so when God has already told you, speak to the rock, it will pour forth its water and you will bring water out of the rock for them and so you will give the community and their livestock water to drink. Moses had received the solution. Why then was he so agitated about the problem? Only after I lost my father did I understand the passage. What had happened immediately before? The first verse of the chapter states, The people stopped at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Only then does it state that the people had no water. An ancient tradition explains that the people had hitherto been blessed by a miraculous source of water in the merit of Miriam. When she died, the water ceased. However, it seems to me that the deeper connection lies not between the death of Miriam and the lack of water, but between her death and Moses' loss of emotional equilibrium. Miriam was his elder sister. She'd watched over his fate when, as a baby, he'd been placed in a basket and floated down the Nile. She had had the courage and enterprise to speak to Pharaoh's daughter and suggest that he be nursed by a Hebrew, thus reuniting Moses and his mother and ensuring that he grew up knowing who he was and to which people he belonged. He owed his sense of identity to her. Without Miriam, he could never have become the human face of God to the Israelites, lawgiver, liberator, and prophet. Losing her, he lost not only his sister, he lost the human foundation of his life. Bereaved, you lose control of your emotions. You find yourself angry when the situation calls for calm. You hit when you should speak, and you speak when you should be silent. Even when God has told you what to do, you are only half listening. You hear the words, but they don't fully enter your mind. Maimonides asked the question, how is it that Jacob, a prophet, didn't know that his son Joseph was still alive? He answers because he was in a state of grief. And the Shekhinah, the divine presence, doesn't enter us when we're in a state of grief. Moses at the rock was not so much a prophet as a man who had just lost his sister. He was inconsolable and not in control. He was the greatest of the prophets, but he was also human, rarely more so than here. Our parsha is about mortality. That is the point. God is eternal, we are ephemeral. As we say in the Unatane Tokev prayer on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we are a fragment of pottery a blade of grass, a flower that fades, a shadow, a cloud, a breath of wind. We are dust, and to dust we return. But God is life forever. At one level, Moses at the rock is a story about sin and punishment. Because you did not have sufficient faith in me to sanctify me, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given you. We may not be sure what the sin exactly was or why it merited so severe a punishment, but at least we know the ballpark, the territory to which the story belongs. Nonetheless, it seems to me that here, as in so many other places in the Torah, there is a story beneath the story, and it is a different one altogether. Chukat is about death, loss, and bereavement. 
Miriam dies. Aaron and Moses are told they will not live to enter the promised land. Aaron dies, and the people mourn for him for 30 days. Together, they constituted the greatest leadership team the Jewish people has ever known. Moses, the supreme prophet, Aaron, the high priest, and Miriam, perhaps the greatest of them all. What the Pasha is telling us is for each of us there's a Jordan we will not cross, a promised land we will not enter. It is not for you to complete the task, even the greatest, a mortal. That is why the Pasha begins with the ritual of the red heifer, whose ashes mixed with the ash of cedarwood, hyssop, and scarlet wool, and dissolved in living water, are sprinkled over one who's been in contact with the dead so that they may enter the sanctuary. This is one of the most fundamental principles of Judaism. Death defiles. For most religions throughout history, life after death has proved more real than life itself. That's where the gods live, thought the Egyptians. That's where our ancestors are alive, believed the Greeks and Romans and many primitive tribes. That's where you find justice, thought many Christians. That's where you find paradise, thought many Muslims. Life after death and the resurrection of the dead are fundamental, non-negotiable principles of Jewish faith. But Tanakh is conspicuously quiet about them. It's focused on finding God in this life, on this planet, notwithstanding our mortality. Lo hametim, hallelujah, the dead do not praise God, says the psalm. God is to be found in life itself with all its hazards and dangers, bereavements and grief. We may be no more than dust and ashes, as Abraham said, but life itself is mayim chayim, a never-ending stream. And it is this that the rite of the red heifer symbolizes. With great subtlety, the Torah mixes law and narrative together, the law before the narrative because because God provides the cure before the disease. Miriam dies. Moses and Aaron are overwhelmed with grief. Moses for a moment loses control, and he and Aaron are reminded that they too are mortal and will die before entering the land. Yet this is, as Maimonides said, the way of the world. We are embodied souls. We are flesh and blood. We grow old. We lose those we love. Outwardly, we struggle to maintain our composure, but inwardly, we weep. Yet life goes on, and what we began, others will continue. Those we loved and lost live on in us, as we will live on in those we love. For love is as strong as death, and the good we do never dies. Shabbat Shalom.